everybody out there. My name is Kevin Ford, Chair of Prosperity Kalamazoo Coordinator for the City of Kalamazoo. This is episode 10 of the Share Prosperity Kalamazoo podcast. We have a great guest on the show today, Ebony White, um, Director of Racial Economic Justice for Prosperity Now. Um, not only is she the Director for Racial Economic Justice for Prosperity Now, but she is also a Kalamazoo native. So I didn't know that when I reached out to her. I know she had graduated from Western, but I didn't know she was a Kalamazoo native. So this is an exceptionally exciting day uh, and show uh, for us today. Um, and in that role as Director of Racial Economic Justice for Prosperity Now, Ms. White provides tailored technical assistance and capacity building for nonprofits of color, um, increases their understanding of the racial wealth divide in their community, builds economic assets for their community, um, as well as highlight best practices as it relates to um, the racial wealth divide. She's also the lead implementer for the Building High Impacts Nonprofits of Color Project. In that role, she supports um, intentional understanding, awareness, and impact programs and policy as it relates to the racial wealth divide and also strengthens uh, Prosperity Now's wealth divide analysis in that work. Um, she brings a, a ton of experience um, to that role and to this conversation today. Um, former uh, staff member at the Kellogg Foundation and this Truth Racial Healing and Transformation Project there. And so happy to have Ebony White as a guest on the show today. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here as well. Yes, pleasure and honor. Um, so we'll hop right into it. But before we talk about the work you do at Prosperity Now. Um, we've established kind of a rhythm on, <laughs> on the podcast in terms of, so so first of all, let me back up. Here, we consider ourselves students and champions of systems thinking, right? And understanding that the, the, the work is at that level, even though it's, it's on the groundwork, but understand the systems and the many elements that go into um, the systems work. Nothing happens in the vacuum. Nothing happens in in silos, right? It's right. Like interdependencies. And so, that said, you just didn't become director of racial economic justice yesterday. It was a whole bunch of experiences and um, opportunities that you took advantage of. And so, our first question is: Who who is Ebony White, and what? drew you for the work that you are involved in currently? Good question. So who is Ebony White? Um, so Ebony White is definitely a, a product of, of Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, and I would say with that, that I am my mother, <laughs> Charlene Taylor. Um, so my mother, um, she has always done work that was connected to the community whether it was community health to youth development work, um, that's still what she does today. And um, through my mother's work, I was always connected to the community, always um, volunteering before I even knew I was volunteering. And it really opened my eyes to just an appreciation for what we had because we didn't have a lot. Um, between my, my mother and my grandmother, they made sure that me and my siblings had what we needed. Um, I didn't realize how much we didn't have actually probably till I got to high school, to be quite honest. And I started seeing like just some of the differences between what me and my peers had. But, um, you know, being able to be in a community, seeing people go without, it, it showed me not only appreciation of um, appreciating what I had and knowing that people had it worse off than me, but also it just my my passion for wanting to help others grew from that experience. And so I have this overwhelming desire to just really want to help people, to position people, to be able to um, have the tools that they need to, to really be able to thrive and to do better for themselves, as well as just being a voice for those who don't have a voice. 
And so I know I've had experienced times where I felt like I didn't have a voice and, um, you know, I've been privileged throughout my um, career to be able to sit at tables where I do have the voice and I am the person speaking on behalf of those who look like me. And so, um, you know, beginning with my early career doing, doing youth development work, that's where I come from is youth development work. I, I was working Kalamazoo Junior Girls, um, which um, those from Kalamazoo know about, um, to do the Boys and Girls Club, I mean, Salvation Army, all those things, all youth development, um, the YMCA was my very first job. And so what I realized in all that was that I really wanted to be positioned in a way where I can make greater impact. And so that led me to seek opportunities where I can still make that type of impact in the community, but do it at a greater scale. And that's how I ended up at the Catalog Foundation for um, almost 10 years. And throughout that, my time span there, it really opened my eyes to just really all the the racial um, disparities, the systemic inequities that really existed in our in our communities and our systems and our institutions, and how it was really impacting individuals and um, families, particularly of color. And so, um, from my my tenure at the Kellogg Foundation, I was able to work across um, different areas from the um, the education system to the health equities. Um, looking at um, breastfeeding, looking at um, even work in Mississippi and New Orleans. I, I did work there for five years out of my time there, where if you're working in those regions, you cannot talk about any of the work without not centering race. And so, um, you know, I, I was able to just really build up my muscle for all of the the different ways in which our society is functioning and how it's also just not working for all people. And so um, one of the things that I will say too is not only was I able to get experience around, you know, education, economics, health, financial institutions, and how that's also impacting communities, but also looking at it from the human side. And so that's really where a lot of my um, work that I did with the truth, racial healing, and transformation were coming to speed, looking at um, race and um, how do we center race and look at the, the human um, person within all of us and just really trying to dismantle that human hierarchy of a human value that is really embedded within our systems. Um, and how can we really create spaces for um, some of that healing and trauma to really um, take place? And so that really underscores the work that I do, whereas I'm looking at things where, yes, policies and systems is definitely important. We need to dismantle them, in my opinion, and really try to figure out a way to create some new ones. But also, how can we look at the, the how can we shift the hearts and the minds behind the individuals that's also making some of these decisions that are hindering those who we love so much? And so um, I, I like to bring both of those lenses to the work. And um, I'll, I'll say the reason how I got to prosperity now is, you know, after working at the, as a founder, as a, a funder, I will say for almost 10 years, you get to a point where you want to be closer to the work. Um, you want to be able to talk about a work, talk about the work in a way where you're not kind of constrained. And so, um, what was really um, what grabbed my attention about the work of the Racial Wealth Divide Initiative at that time was that I was I would be able to really work with organizations that are all BIPOC led that are working in communities of color, and so being able to continue the work that I do around how to um, work for social justice and racial equity in that sense, and not have to talk in circles or you know, do all those things to make people feel better <laughs> was definitely something that I was attracted to. I was like, sign me up for that. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. It's some, it, it can be some pressures um, at that level in, in some of these rooms. For some, some of our listeners, the racial wealth divide, that may be a new term or a term that they don't fully understand. Now, 
I personally have long been interested in the economic element of how to, like you said, position um, BIPOC folks and BIPOC communities and been following the work of Prosperity Now since it was uh, CFED. I can't even remember the mm-hmm. what CFED stood for, but I know <laughs> they went through a name change. And uh, one of the folks that used to work there, um, Edric Asante Mohammed, yeah, work around the, the racial wealth divide, and that's how I came to 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 know about it. And for our listeners out there that don't know, what is the racial wealth divide? or um, the racial wealth gap, we'll be using those terms synonymously. Mm-hmm. But what is it and why is it something we should be looking at right now? Great question. And yes, Diedrich actually, um, he was a colleague of mine before he um, decided to go um, to another opportunity um, with NCRC, but you know, pretty much, so the racial wealth gap. So that pretty much um, looks at the disparities around wealth when it comes to just for contacts um, between black and white families. So um, I think it was in 2018 that it was the recent, the most recent study was saying that, so for the average black family wealth, if it continues to grow at the same at the same pace as it is um, currently, that it would take black families 242 years to get to the same amount of wealth as white families that what they have today. So, um, and I, and I want to say for a Latino family, it's 94 years to be able to get to the same wealth. As we both know, that trajectory is probably gonna widen if we really don't do something different. And so one of the things that people really get confused about is people really pay only pay attention to income and there's a this big disconnection between income and wealth. Mm-hmm. And so to be clear, so income is really like the flow of money um, and the assets that a family is bringing in and wealth pretty much is looking at so what is it that you have after you take away your expenses? Uh, what are the assets that can be really accumulated over a period of time? And so um, when you're looking at wealth, that disparity between um, communities of color and white families is just really larger. And so income really, in a nutshell, income reflects how much money you make each year, just point blank. Um, and for whatever reason, you know, we do have some families that they're not making enough or, you know, their expenses is larger than what they're bringing in. So in some cases, they're even at a negative, you know, as far as what they're able to show. And so, you know, one of the things that I like to to say, because there's also this misconception that, oh, if you just, you know, go get education and you'll be good, but that's not the case. There's a lot of studies that show that there are black families um, that can have the same education. And when it comes to the wealth that they're actually bringing in, I'll say like the, a black family coming in and the wealth that they're having can, be even less than what a white family is bringing in who just has a GED. So education has not really yet to really be a, a major factor. It definitely helps, but it's, it does, it's not a major factor when it comes to the wealth. And I think that's some, one of the things we need to really think about because one of the things that you know white families have on us is they have just a lot of uh, past policies and um, practices that have just really helped them to get to where they are at today, you know, and we're going back to, of course, the legacy of, of slavery, um, the and how they even took land from Native Americans and how how that really helped to create a lot of the wealth that they have and, uh, and how that intergenerational wealth since then has still really helped to position um, our white families where they are at today. So it makes no sense for people to think that 
in particular, you know, Black and Native Americans, Native Americans can just wake up and all of a sudden we could be making the same type of wealth that white families when we don't have that intergenerational wealth like they do. You know, and it, it comes into um, play when we're thinking about education, which is why communities of color have the most student loan debt. It comes into play when we're thinking about investments, so how home ownership and just, you know, there's a lot of things that wealth impact a family's ability to do to be able to not only live comfortably, but be able to invest in themselves and into their families and to stay away from debt. Right, right. And you touched on a lot there, but some things that that jumped out at me and that have helped me in terms of distinguishing the difference between wealth and income. And this is something I actually learned from uh, Mr. Muhammad that we spoke at a conference, but income, income fluctuates. So many of us, if not all of us, don't start off making um, you know, high five figures, right? You start off probably making low amounts of money and over time throughout your career, your income increase because your salary and wages can increase. Right. But income fluctuates. And like you said, it's, it's really uh, like a snapshot, a point in time because it can change. And wealth, um, as, as Mr. Muhammad described, is, is stickier. It's, it's a longer term thing and it can it can actually serve as a as a buffer in many cases against um potential losses and so yeah. when you was talking about income and earnings and wealth i think that's important to highlight for the listeners that um income is important don't don't get it don't get it don't get it wrong Income is very important and in fact is a building block to wealth because oh yeah as it stands, home ownership, business ownership are still primary pillars of wealth accumulation. Um, but you have to have some income to purchase those things or to get started in, in those things. And so income is is very important and it's it's connected to you know the ability to save. Like if you have no income and save right. zero. And so income is important, but like you said, focusing on that alone and neglecting the wealth side is it, it puts the work at a at a disadvantage. They need to be uh, both. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, and, and especially, you know, given that we've been in this pandemic. I think the pandemic only really heightened the issue of people really not having that um, that liquidity for businesses to be able to draw on and savings for families to draw on because they don't have those savings. They don't have, you know, the ability to what we call asset poor is they don't have the ability to to go three months without the income that's coming in because so many people are living paycheck to paycheck, yeah. you know, and so. Um, given that we've been in this pandemic, it really um, heightened, I will say, um, the work that um, Prosperity Now does and others in this sector around just really how much of an issue um, it is for families to be able to, to have that, um, that cushion, as you, as you call it, to be able to um, pull on giving some of the, the strenuous times that we've been in. Yeah, and also from a systems perspective, you know, having, and I want, because we, we tend to talk about systems a lot on the podcast and really want folks to understand like the importance of that. But in terms of systems, a family is a system. And so uh, families, living in neighborhoods, neighborhoods or systems. If you have families struggling or with financial insecurity combined with uh, living in a distressed neighborhood, like it compounds the disadvantages a lot of the times. And so yeah. if, we, if we're looking at it from a systems perspective, um, what you just lifted up becomes, you know, even more important that families 
in in these neighborhoods and communities have the the financial wherewithal because that's something uh that's something i experienced myself listening to to some folks um in my circle when the when the pandemic first hit and things got shut down mm-hmm. yeah they didn't have a financial wherewithal and yeah over time it just it just compounded and so there were disparities that was there even before the pandemic you know mm-hmm. you know people were acting like oh my god you know <laughs> it was it was it was kind of it was it was really interesting to me because people was acting like this was like um new for the communities that's been struggling and what the partners you know i work with bipoc led organizations and so my partners you know what we really was trying to uplift is that is that no these are challenges that's been happening in these communities and if anything especially for communities of color those circumstances got even worse what was different was that other people who never really thought that they would be in those situations found themselves in those situations. Right, right. For for some some reasons, um, around the, the savings perspective, and I know it's a lot of folks that that um, have and continue to do work around uh, savings in in um, our country. But yeah, they found themselves in a precarious position because they didn't save. They didn't have the savings to to weather a uh, pandemic and shutdown. And so, yeah, like you said, it's a it's a different story when you're on the other end of it. It, it is. It really made people um, have more empathy for those who, you know, it was not a new situation for them. And I will say I will. I mean, I will definitely point out that no one knew that here we are. Um, what over a half a year and a half later we're still in this situation for the most part for some people um and so the even like the whole standard of having three months that actually maybe was not even enough within this situation you know so i will say the pandemic to me was not the um the standard or the average type of situation you would ever want to be in for anybody um, but it definitely was a, a wake-up call for folks. But, you know, one of the things I'll say, you know, within the work that I do is we really try to stress to folks that there is disinvestment that exists at all levels. It's the, the individual, the organizational, and the institutional level that's impacting communities and, and impacting their whole ecosystem of their ability to be able to do that rebound, you know? And so, you know, really trying to get push people to 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 think about the institutionals that you that you just lifted up, especially given that a lot of my work is really around how can we bring more resources to the organizations that are situated within these communities. That's really like um, really trying to um, be responsive to these services um, to the needs of um, those who are just furthest away from justice and furthest away as far as being able to have have access to these type of um, resources. And that's a great segue into uh, the next uh, leg of the discussion. So as I mentioned in the intro, um, your uh, lead in terms of the Building High Impact Nonprofits of Color Project. And I'm going to include this in the show notes, the, the report that yeah. you probably put out and I'll let the listeners know it's only 32 pages long. That's not long in terms of a publication, but it is super packed with information. It's, it's amazing. They got all that in 32 pages. It's a very dynamic document. <laughs> um, a testament to, process. Um, yeah, <laughs> to, to how black women take a whole bunch of stuff and, and put it in the in a very digestible way to understand. Um, so yeah. I'll include that in the show notes. But where you were going with the conversation in terms of institutions and organizations, I know we had talked a lot about families and people tend to think about that as like on the ground. But the building high impact nonprofits of color project. Tell us a little bit more about that and how that ties into the connection to, to families. 
Yeah. So the Building High Impact Nonprofits for Color Project is a project that was um, really like the the staple of my team's work um, going back to 2015 um, when my team was developed. And so it really what it does is that we provide technical assistance capacity building to organizations that are BIPOC led working in communities of color trying to advance economic wealth building strategies. And so, you know, given the fact that we have not gotten to, you know, what we call this racial wealth divide by, um, um, you know, overnight, I would say, and we know that there's many different variables that are impacting, um, I'll say communities, individuals ability to be able to really um, be able to not only get stable, but to to have that economic mobility that we want folks to have, we, you know, there's no silver bullet. I just said it. There's no silver bullet to addressing the racial wealth divide um, because there is so many things. So when I say no silver bullet, what I'm saying is there is no one solution. Right. There is multiple solutions that are necessary. There's also multiple partners that need to be at play here. And so we do partner with, um, various um, nonprofits, which also includes CDFIs as well, too, um, that are led, um, that are working to really move these resources. And we are working with folks who do home ownership to um, credit and savings um, services to um, community development work, um, the CDFIs, so around loans, um, small business support, uh, for entrepreneurs and um, other um, businesses of color. And so it's really um, a variety, but the type of um, services that we're really providing them is we're, we're doing capacity building. So how can we help strengthen their infrastructure so that they are more effective and that they're able to scale? We, we know uh, research shows that usually these organizations are doing a lot more with less resources than their, their peers. And so, there's a few things that we're trying to do. We're trying to increase their services. So we're providing them um, training around communication, strategic planning, financial management, um, development and fundraising, how to actually apply a racial economic equity lens to your work. Like, what does it mean? Like, this is something that I feel like is a buzzword right now, but a lot of people don't know what it actually means in real life. And right. so really going through a process of, looking at data. So in this particular project, we do create racial wealth divide profiles in these communities where we're looking at what has been the historical policies and practices that have really um, impacted and um, really is the reason why you, you are experiencing this racial wealth divide and what does it mean today for your um, community? Um, what, has, what has been some of those events? Um, and so really looking at things from redlining to you know just a lot of other things like that to also looking at to, so how is this still showing up today? Like what is still happening today that your, your local um, government should be looking at and your community and, and other community practitioners should really be having some discussions about. But within that data, we're also helping them to, to also be able to be an expert. So how to analyze the data like what does the data what does the data mean for not only your constituents but to you? Like how does that impact your work? How does right. that impact your services? How does it impact how you actually um, develop your approaches or how you communicate why your services is needed? How does it help you get more resources and funding? So really, just how do you apply that lens and how do you use it within your work so that? you are also seen as an expert and you are also feeling equipped to be able to actually pair your client stories to the data. Cause depending on whoever you're talking to, you're going to need both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so really helping them to do that. Yeah. Were you going to say something? <laughs> no, I was saying we definitely need both um, the, the quantitative and the qualitative. Exactly. And then also the policy and advocacy piece. So we also work in collaboration with our policy team to be able to help provide some um, trainings. I mean, there's a lot more nonprofits who are seeing the need for them to have an advocacy um, space. And so understanding that 
this may not be their their main jam, but they also understand that if they don't have a voice and have a way of being able to inform these policies, that they're going to continue continually have to just be kind of band-aids to some of these root issues that's happening in their communities. So giving them the tool set to be able to actually be at those tables and help inform um, the policies that are being put forth in the community as well. And then also with funders, um, there's disinvestments. Like I said, there's disinvestments at the, the organizational level. So really, as a national intermediary, we're able to take the risk and push the funders to say, hey, you're saying you want to make these impacted communities of color. These are organizations that are working in communities of color. This is the impact that they are having because they are already high impact. But guess what? They're not getting the same investment as some of these other white-led institutions. Why is that? Right. And what is like where is the disconnect? How can we help funders to actually invest in ways that's more rooted in equity as well? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think. So at the you know, we spoke about families earlier, the individual level. If you think about an individual within um the workforce and the occupation and the research. That, that shows the, the research that displays occupational segregation and how um, BIPOC folks may not be getting fairly compensated for the same work that their white peers are doing. Then you scale up, like you said, to the organizational level, you have entirely BIPOC-led organizations um, segregated in the sense that they're not getting compensated in at the at the same level as some of their white organizational peers, right? So it's a yeah a crazy connection, but like you said, it's there and um it's 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 just interesting to to look, especially at the level where those organizations can reach so many people, right? Right. And, yeah, I mean, one of the things too that you know I want to make sure that I I definitely know is that you know some people say so why are you so focused on BIPOC led? Um, and I'll say to them because you know I really believe that institutions, especially their executives that are leading their work, that reflect their um, their residents, the you know the residents um, racial and ethnic, ethnic diversity, I just feel like they are better positioned to serve communities of color because they have not only the connection, but they have the understanding of their economic realities on the ground because they are typically from the community. They are the community. That's why they are better situated um, to be able to really have the trust that's needed within the community. And also it's just a better way of, of making sure that the community is actually um, being represented and they're going to be more um, they're going to be more positioned to be able to really try to make sure that the community's voice is actually informing their work as well. Mm -hmm. It's going to be in collaboration and in, it's going to be in collaboration with the community, not onto the community. Right, right, right. Important distinction. Yeah. Very in distinction and so in terms of that uh, racial wealth divide what are some important elements in the racial wealth divide that um, have changed over time in changing what do you mean let me I want to make sure I understand your question in terms of maybe patterns or trends that have emerged um regarding the, the racial wealth divide um i mean I, I think there's a lot of work that we need to do in regards i i don't feel like it's um it's getting better yet mm -hmm. uh, i feel like there's definitely some work that needs to happen on the the policy landscape um as well as you know one of the things just the investments and so there was a lot of energy with the pandemic and you know a lot of the unrest that recently happened where a lot of funders were you know putting out these statements we're gonna you know 
invest all this money into different communities and into even the institutions, into the small businesses of color, entrepreneurs of color. Like there's been a lot of that out there um, this past year, yep. um, which is great. Um, I think we're at a point now, especially given that we're, we're kind of at this, we're, I'm hoping we're moving into this post-pandemic, um, but I don't know with this, you know, <laughs> new stuff that's happening. Um, but we're at a moment right now where it's really important that those people actually follow through. There was a lot of investment that went into these institutions, a um, lot more than what they previously have I have received before the pandemic. And there's also just a lot of anxiety, anxiety uh, from these partners on the ground around if the funding will maintain or if it will go back to normal. Because our society has a history of just, oh, this is important in the now, but then they go back to their regular habits. And right. so the investment is something that I'm hoping um, sticks um, because it's needed. It can't be, it just, it can't just be the organizations on the ground. We need all sectors involved. Uh, we need our funding institutions involved. We need the business sector involved because we are all connected to this. And right. so um, when it comes to being able to really make some shifts, I think we need to continue that. We need to scale that energy. We need people to actually follow through. We need these investments um, to be done in a way that are really rooted in equity. And our policies need to be looked at through an equity lens where it's not just putting the policy out there, but also thinking about how it's actually implemented because that's where the nuances and the, and the craziness come in when it comes to the implementation. Yeah. Or we put these um, policies out, but they don't have the funding to really move it along the way that it needs to move along. So I really challenge those who say that this is something that they are, that they care about, that they want to see happen, to really put the money where it needs to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, like you said, and, and let the and let the community lead. Let the community lead it. Let it, you know, if the if the community is not at the center of what is happening, we have already messed up. Mm -hmm. And with the the building high impact nonprofits of color project, um, I know it was various cities you went to and various nonprofits within those cities, BIPOC led nonprofits uh, with whom you were working. What are some of the things um, you all have found effective in working with those nonprofits involving, like you said, some of the other partners, so the, the private sector um, funders? Because, um, again, we, we talking we talking systems level now, and it's, it's a we we're in a, a society where it's a web of interdependencies. And so yeah. like you mentioned with the policy and the advocacy of, of nonprofits, it may not be their jam, but if you're a systems thinker, you understand how policy impacts what you're doing. Exactly. So it behooves you to at least have a, a modicum of understanding in order mm -hmm. to be able to, to be a voice in that room. So yeah, just interested to know through your work with um, those other cohorts in those other cities, how you've involved the private sector and um, funders in terms of advancing that work. Yeah, so I'll say, I think there's still some work to do on the private sector side. Um, a lot of our focus have um, been with the funders and I will say definitely just being a convener, we are definitely a convener, creating those spaces for those conversations to happen. Um, providing the data to really ground the the conversation in those um, in that space, but also making sure that our partners that we're working with, what we're seeing is that by engaging in our work, they're actually they feel equipped to be able to have those conversations. They not only feel um, empowered from us, but they feel empowered from each other because now they have this collective voice as well 
um, when they're going into these rooms because it is typically a community effort. Um, and so being able to create that space, us as an intermediary take the, the risk of pushing and asking some of those hard questions, I think is what we've done. And we've seen that um, funders, they understand that they, they need to do better and I've seen them um, be more open to trying to work in collaboration with our partners on the ground on initiatives um, so that they can make sure that they're being accountable to what they're saying that they're going to do. I would say on the business side, I'm just starting some work on the CDFI side um, that's really around the business sector. And um, I'm hoping to be able to share you know, some more possible promising solutions around what we learn from that as our work continue to grow in that space. Yeah, that's that's always that's always a, a mixed bag engaging the private sector in some of these some of these efforts, um, especially when you start to just in general, but specifically when you start to inject race, um, it it becomes a very careful dance in terms of involving them and sustaining that involvement. So you had mentioned, um, you lifted up sustainability. Like it's great that folks um, have taken, you know, have felt the need to, to become involved, but the sustainability piece, uh, as well as the implementation is something that struck me as, as very relevant to the conversation. Um, because yeah, it's, it's hot right now to be making these statements, but like you said, two years from now, three years from now, um, the, the next crisis emerges that may be bigger or the next shiny object. And it's like, where where's the support now? So the sustainability piece is something that um, is of interest to me. And I know it's something even locally, we it's constant um item in conversations like yeah how do we sustain this and and grow it um give it legs and then the implementation and so um i'm also interested to know because this is something that um i've seen in other spaces and locally as well but interested to know with the building high impact nonprofits a color project like the learning element right and so like is stated in the in the report and you stated it there's this is not a silver bullet there are no silver bullets there are no there's no one thing that's going to get us there it's a whole bunch of things and involvement from many actors right. and so that necessarily uh, begs a question like how are we learning how are we engaging in continuous improvement um recognizing there are some uh shortcomings blind spots and opportunities to grow and just interested to know with the project, um, like how you all are going about the learning aspect. Of it. Yeah, so um, great question. So we, we do a lot of <laughs> evaluations. We got surveys, testimonials. Um, we do it all um, through all of our, our cohorts and we are on cohort five right now. So, you know, that report, was our first report really looking at what have we actually learned since 2015. And I think we, I mean, I only plan to just build from there. And so continually asking for our participants feedback on where we can do better. How can we help to bridge more gaps or, you know, being asked to do more ecosystem work, I will say is one of the things that's shifting. So while in the beginning, our work was really focused on the organizations, um, getting their, their um, services out, providing platforms for them to speak to their work. Now we're being asked too to say, hey, you know what? These trainers are great. We have other community members beyond them who can actually um, really um, find it beneficial to get some training specifically around the racial economic equity lens piece of it. And so just really trying to be responsive. And um, and I think that's what we have to do is continually be responsive, continually build out our evaluation and the impact that we're having, as well as just looking for ways to um, to scale. 
And so, like I mentioned earlier, while I was focused on um, nonprofits and building up their infrastructure, I'm also doing a lot of work with CDFIs, Black and Brown led CDFIs. And that's why they're, CD, why they're nonprofits. They're still a whole kind of different ball game, you know, and how can we, through them, impact small businesses and entrepreneurs? And so that's kind of a way in which we're, we're growing um, and we're also shifting as needed where we're seeing some opportunities to leverage some um, some assets and some connections and partnerships. And so really trying to, to, to capitalize on those things. Yeah, great stuff. So just for listeners' information, CDFI is community development financial institution yes um and yeah it's a lot of them around around the community i believe they were created just just for that to address inequities uh that the banks um had you know participated in creating and so yeah that's great stuff to hear um yeah, they they're definitely meant to serve um, lenders who cannot, who are not, who don't, who doesn't fit the criteria of the of a standard financial institution. So they may not have the credit savings, you know, that you may need to walk into. I don't know. Bank of America or somebody, but like um, definitely have um, lesser criteria, and they also provide more hands-on in getting a person where they need to be to actually apply for loans. Mm-hmm. And it would definitely be on smaller scales, but it's more so like that seed money to get help people to get ready for um, to hopefully be able to transition to a larger uh, financial institution at some point. Right. Um. As, as we look to, you know, address the, the racial wealth divide, um, what are some possible indicators that we'll start to see as we make progress in this in this area? Well, for one, the disparities between, um, you know, income, wealth, home ownership. Um, the uh, the value of businesses between communities of color and whites will begin to get smaller. I mean, those are the indicators that we're looking at um, to be able to really tell that there's been um, some shifts. That that bridge will not be be widening anymore. But those are like some of the key things that we would be looking for. Um, Families will have the ability to to invest in their kids' education. Um, student loan student loan debt would not be what it is right now. Um, home ownership debt would not be what it is right now because there while there's definitely good home ownership debt, people are what we're finding too, which is another issue is that some people get in home ownership not really fully understanding what it means to be a homeowner, and then they find themselves you know in a whole nother situation. Right. So how we get, how can we keep people in these homes and how can we keep them in a, in a home where they're able to keep up with the upkeep of it and they're actually able to transfer that home to their you know other family members because we're I'm, I don't know about you but I'm also seeing people where even those who have homes they don't want to keep them because they have not been upkept and they just feel they feel like it's too much investment to get it to where it needs to be so this right. is a lot of education that we need to do for people to actually go into home ownership and be successful at it. Yeah, and what you just said is, it just highlights and reinforces just a whole list of different systems elements. So uh, one thing I've noticed is, again, you could you could have a homeowner in a, a neighborhood and the home could be kept up but if the other homes around it are not, it impacts the value of that home, right? Yeah. And so if you essentially have um, a, a black neighborhood or neighborhood with a high black population that has a lot of families struggling with financial insecurity, it's a distressed neighborhood, even if the homes are owned, the value is not the same as it may be in other um, neighborhoods and so again that systems piece of yes home ownership is is one piece but then the community development is another 
a system in and of itself and yeah. important part of the concept. Yep, amplifying and strengthening that home ownership uh, work. And yeah. so, yeah, it's a lot of elements, a lot of factors um, that go yeah. into coming yeah. in. Yeah, and we got to figure it out. I mean, the cost of living is continually going up. Why and- wait or not? <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation right there yeah <laughs> yeah 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 definitely so what are some things that cities municipalities can do to help close the racial wealth divide i would i would say um some things that they can do is try to to figure out different ways in which they can um, adequately have city funding that is situated in a way that it aligns where where the needs are the most. So um, even looking at school systems, like the neighborhoods, um, I'm not gonna say every neighborhood needs like 200K, for example, you know, A, B, and C may need a lot more because they just have more needs. And so we need to figure out a way where we have um, our budgeting is done in a way that's have equity and equality. So two different things. And I think that's one thing that um, cities can do um, around just how they're supporting the different things that's happening, as well as, you know, let's look at, look at some of the practices of that's really, um, keeping a lot of these disparities in place. Um, There's still home lending um, discriminations that's happening. Um, So really institutions need to figure out how they can do their own work. So looking internally. So I know that there's a lot of work that's happening around um, DEI. And I just wanna name DEI is not the same thing as racial equity work. <laughs> but it needs to happen because if people do their own DEI work, it helps to um, position institutions to be able to do work more equitable outside in the community. And so I think um, finding ways for them to be more accountable to themselves and to the to their communities is, is important. Uh, we need to be diversified. I mean, to be quite honest, uh, we need more voices, more um, ideas that's not just by um, traditional leaders. And um, we also need to look at things like, you know, how can we not only get more investments into um, the proper places, but like, you know, and beyond like the mortgage rate disparities, there's the, the criminal justice systems role in financial securities. I mean, there's a lot of things. I mean, there's saving penalty, saving penalties for public assistance programs that need to go away. Like they want people to be so like broken on their knees to need help. And if they try to do anything to do better, they, they get penalized for it. Like that makes no sense to me. Right. <laughs> and so there's definitely some policies that I say, you know, cities should look at. Um, so local and national policies that need to be looked at that just really are keeping a lot of these um, disparities in place. Right. And again, the, the system speaks because some of that is connected to state. So state assistance um, programs that penalize folks for trying to advance. Mm-hmm. And um, like you said, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense unless the, the, the function of that system is to keep people in, in poverty. In that, exactly. Right? And that's how a lot of our system is currently set up. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of solutions, um, what are one short-term solution, one medium-term, and one long-term solution that mm-hmm. could possibly um, help move this work forward? Oh, well, I mean, I feel like I've named a, a few solutions. Um, um, if I had to call out three solutions, um, short term would be definitely, um, I, I just think our, our funding institutions, our investing institutions, 
they can do more. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say definitely um, figure out some ways to get more um, flows of resources into um, communities of color. And I would also say it's not even just money, it's, it's networks, it's relationships yeah. um, that's needed for folks to be able to, to really scale their work. Um, mid, uh, uh, what do you say? Midterm, not midterm, but uh, medium. medium solution. Um, you know, a medium solution, probably I probably would look at some of the, the practices that um, are currently happening um, locally and where local folks can kind of come together um, to do some things. So I, I really recommend if there's initiatives that is cross sector to include folks beyond those who are kind of part of our choir who already get it. Um, mm -hmm. How can we bring in others that are um, key um, players in your community um, key people who impact your clients but are not at the table, we have to figure out a way to find those um, commonalities in those um, mutual goals that we have um, to be able to um, basically um, remove ourselves from the work. And if, if, if you're genuinely trying to do something for the community, remove yourself and let it be about the work. And y'all should be able to come up with some ways to work together. Um, given that it is so many, um, given that it's, you know, that you guys are really impacting communities in different ways. And so just really trying to find ways to 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 work across the lines, build up our allyship of, of those who's really trying to um, advance um, equity in, in communities. And then I would say, lastly, like going back to those policies, those, those are the, the things that's going to take the longest term to get to. So, you know, um, really trying to to figure out what are the policy solutions that's necessary in your community for your for your constituents to be able to thrive and really trying to position um, the community leaders that's on the ground doing the work to really um, have the the resources and the, the platform to do what's needed to make those hard decisions. Um, because there's just a lot of things that needs to happen. Um, right. There's just a lot of things that needs to, we need to diversify, like even the community development space, like the gentrification that's happening. A lot of that is happening, even though there's a lot of good initiatives out here, it's still happening because when it comes to the development side, it's all white. Like we need to figure out how to diversify some of these sectors that's um, really impacting and um, unfortunately kind of impeding the the progress that we should be making right right again understanding how how different systems impact and play off of one another and how taking one step forward in one system could be two steps back in another one and so yes. yeah community development yeah. Is, is um the ecosystem assessment is is real it's a it's a key thing that needs to happen mm-hmm So first, I want to thank you for your time and knowledge um, in discussing this. Um, as we close out, there's some things we typically do to close out the show. Before that, though, I want to give you a chance to let folks know how they can connect with your work. I, I will put the Prosperity Now website in the show notes. But if there's any other um, avenues folks can connect with the work, um, you could let them know right now. Yeah, so thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. Um, you can reach me at prosperitynow.org. I'm on LinkedIn at Ebony Princess White. I'm on Twitter at for Ebony, E-B-O-N-Y. Um, definitely feel free to reach out to me. Thank you. Yep. And then as we close out, um, you know, again, a lot of times we talk about heavy stuff that that impacts a lot of people. We like to close out the show on a lighter note somewhat. So um, first thing is a six word vision for community or society um, that you could provide us, I'll model it. Um, a, a community without racism and poverty. Okay. 
Um, so I guess six words. Yep. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to say a just society with systems that work for everyone. I know it's more than six, but that's all. <laughs> that's, that's fine. You, you put together that um, <laughs> impact uh, report. So you, you, get, you get a pass. It's fine. Oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> then, um, what are you currently reading? Mm, actually, right now, I have a, many books on my to read list <laughs> um, because I am swamped with work, to be quite honest. Um, so I will say one of the, the books, though, that I am I'm currently going to read is the, um, oh, God, what is it called? The um, the Color of, no, The Color of Money. That's the one. Oh, yeah. So, yes, as soon as possible, ASAP, start that. I, okay. I'll that. <laughs> I forgot, I can't. I can't remember how to pronounce the author's last name, but yeah. Me either. It started with a B, I know. <laughs> yeah. So she, she wrote another book, but that color of money, yes, that start that. And for the listeners, a must read um, in terms of highlighting inequities that have exacerbated the racial wealth divide. Um, that was that was a great that was a great book. Another one, too, though, that I'm going to read um, is um, The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. I've heard really mm -hmm. good things about that, too. Okay. I'm going to yeah. look for that in my uh, Audible. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Um, this um, is a question we ask everybody I think is relevant now with the holidays. Cake or pie? Oh, ice cream. <laughs> okay, I don't have a sweet tooth. Okay, if I have to choose, I'm gonna say pie, but I don't have a sweet tooth. <laughs> oh, okay. I was about to say that's a first. We said, we said, pie. We said ice cream. I got you. Give me the ice cream. You take that. Okay. What did you have for dinner last night? I have. I, I had a stuffed um, pepper. <laughs> Okay. I, I'm I'm on a yeah. I had a stuffed pepper. <laughs> I'm on a diet right now. <laughs> that worked. That worked. Um, what is on your nightstand? What is on my nightstand? Um, nothing really. Just nothing. My a humidifier. <laughs> All right. All right, keeping it real. That's what that's what we try to do. Um, and then the last one: What is the most important thing you do to take care of yourself or engage in self care in order for you to show up to do the work? Mm, two things: I I do um, I walk, so making sure I do some type of a walk or fitness activity, and then I also. Um, I think it's important to have somebody to talk to, whether if it's um, executive coach or um, counseling, just somebody that you can actually, when you have to kind of lead in a lot of spaces, it's important for you to have someone that you can kind of lean on or even, you know, just kind of work through things with. You're kind of like your, your go-to person so that you don't have to to feel like you have to be that leading person. So those are two things that I do. All right. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. So Ebony White, again, thank you for your time. Thank you for your knowledge. Um, it was glad. I'm glad we were able to connect. Uh, hopefully this isn't the last conversation. I know Prosperity Now does a lot of work. It's a lot of different folks, not only in our team, but in that organization um, doing great work. Um, in this in this field so thank you um this will be our last show for the year as two weeks from now myself and my co-host melody dakin will be on vacation so this was a great 
way to end um, the year. Also, my co-host Melody Dakin came down with something, and so that's why she isn't here, but uh, we hope she gets well. I want to shout out to the whole PMN crew, that public media network crew that's been helping us produce these podcasts and helping us out. Um, Shout out to them. And thank you all for listening. I hope you all have a great holiday and um, a happy new year. Again, thanks, Ebony White. Thank you. Yep, no problem. All All right. right. To the next time.